Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Amen. Take your copies of the Word of God to the book, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18. I believe that's in the Pew Bible at 735. Luke chapter 18. We'll look at 18 to 30 this morning. But let me, if I might, in behalf of myself, my family, to express great gratitude and thanksgiving for this church, for those so many of you, if not every last one of you, for the outpouring of help, support, well wishes, uh, visits, meals, made our Christmas uh, 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 just a fine time because of my accident was on the 30th. The day of infamy is November 26th, the day after Black Friday. So I'll always remember November 26th. But uh, the cards and uh, uh, just a number of well wishes that, that were there. Uh, when uh, I was in the wheelchair and I had to go back and forth, to the surgeon or to the medical doctor right in the wheelchair. My wife could not necessarily lift that wheelchair back into the car. We would just call people off, off the street, off the, out, in the, out in the parking lot, would you come and help us? And students, many students did, even some TCA students have helped us along that way. I am very, very thankful uh, for this, your prayers and support. About 98% uh, well, I still on my right side is still a little bit uh, gimpy, a little bit, but uh, praise the Lord for the progress that has been made uh, with with my cup recovery. Has been asked, uh, I saw my bike crushed, and so therefore it goes wherever bikes go when they die. So it is gone. And uh, as a promise to my wife, I will no longer ride a motorcycle. Uh, she did buy me a motorcycle for my birthday. It's on a card on my desk. So uh, that's it. But let me reflect, if I might, uh, the past four months, at least for me. Obviously, the great blessings that the Lord provided. When I look at the back of my helmet, I could, if I didn't wear a helmet, which I always did, I would be in heaven right now. But God would have me, obviously, still to serve. God would still have me uh, to be a provider of my home. But some other observations were, they're very evident for me. And that is a 24-7 caregiver. I had to, I watched my wife and my daughter care for me 24-7. Having to provide for me, obviously, the medicines, the pain medicine, turning me over. I could not turn over uh, in regards to uh, having to, 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 to be moved for different types of things. 24-7. For those that are caregivers, I just praise the Lord for the grace that God gives you in order to do that. And it's a great, great challenge. As, again, I, I just watched them from afar, and I'm uh, just great, uh, great blessing uh, for, for caregivers, and certainly for my wife and, and my daughter. I mean, I couldn't even unscrew a, a cap uh, off of a bottle. I just didn't have that type of strength. I couldn't do any of those type of things. And I probably shouldn't ride anyway because I don't think I could afford another accident. I don't think my body could take another one in line of the crush, uh, my crushed body that took place. But there's a, something third. There's a third thing that comes up, a third observation. And that third observation 
And there's, there's really in all three of the synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is this passage. And this passage related to the fact if a believer is willing to, to leave all the values of this land, all the goals and all the objectives that I might have in my life, for the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, that he would receive a manifold blessing in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. And so this passage has become very, well, it was always real to me, but it came far more vivid to me uh, as relate, in relationship to my accident. The multitude of blessedness that has come from this church and many others outside of this church, I said, this passage is a reality in my life. So when a believer decides, and that's one of the things or thoughts for this morning, when a believer decides to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, in prospect, God, our Lord, will provide. The challenge this morning, if we would look at, at Luke chapter, uh, chapter 18, allow me to, just to read, if I might, verse number 29 and verse number 30. That's where our, our, our statement, our challenge, our charge this morning comes. And he said to them, and he's speaking to the disciples, Assuredly, I say unto you, there is no one who has left houses or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, I'd ask their Lord that your people would have an open heart and open ears. We've sung uh, hymns of testimony of, of a sacrifice and willing to go and higher up and those kinds of, of themes that are are in conjunction with with a message that we would be open and we would be reflective about our lives and the willingness to go where Jesus will go and is going. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So here's my thought. It's coming out of verse number 28 and 29. If you and I intentionally, and I got that, and I got that underline, I got that bold-faced, intentionally give our all to Jesus. He has assured us related gains in this life and eternal life to come. He's assured us. If you look at our, our text, he said, assuredly, in a Greek word, it's amen. It's the amen. So he's letting it be known, even though we've got a God that cannot lie, an impeccable God. He's letting it know with great emphasis, assuredly, the amen, that if we give up our all. You know, I thought about Pastor Nathan's message last week, and I'd already had thought about what I was going to preach today. So it isn't just as a, a dovetail as a result of that message. It already exists. And any time, any time, I hear back-to-back messages, you know what I think? God is speaking loudly. He wants, he wants that thought to resonate in our hearts. So if we are intentional, there's not going to be any loss. No loss at all. No loss at all. Now, 
what I'd like to be able to do in structure, and as you would look at the, uh, at the handout, I'd like the structure to go this way. I would like to set forth in our passage a principle. And there are a number of principles that could be derived. So I'm only going to do three. I had five, but I says, well, I'm, I'm long-winded, so I better cut it back to three. So three principles, but then I have a reflective question. You got the re- reflective question on, on, the, on the handout. But then there requires an answer. I can't fill that in for you. You've got to do that. So there's an answer. And keep in mind, we are to be responsive to the Word of God. Now we have an invitation. But you know the invitation at the end of every message, every service, is that we all respond. Now it may be not necessarily for salvation per se, but every message, we're to be responsive people. When there's an amen and we're ready to go, we are being dismissed to apply the truths of that day into our lives. That is to be the way that it is to be. All right, so let's kind of set back a little bit. So that's, that's how the structure will go, and that's what we're going to be looking for as we journey through our passage. We come to a text that is repeated, at least this event, which includes uh, the preceding context, which is the little children coming to Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, let them come. Then the rich young ruler... And then the, the case with the, uh, the uh, speaking of the resurrection uh, that he speaks of the third time. And then the blind man coming forward. That's in all three Gospels. All three of the synoptic Gospels that are, that are there. But this is not the, the first time the Lord Jesus Christ in his public ministry charged those that would come. The crowd and sometimes just to individuals. What's it like to follow me? What's required? What, what should be the follow me? So there's four occasions in Luke where that takes place. There's an occasion that comes to my mind where he says you've got to obviously not be ashamed of me and my word. There is the occasion in which he says that there is not to be any turning back. That was very profound for me very early in my Christian life. That if I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to put my hand on the plow, I am not going to look back. That had a profound effect upon me. And then there was a fourth and third occasion in which uh, he indicated the fact that, you know what, if you're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to count the cost. Nobody builds anything. We don't do anything unless we do make a cost, a budget. Count the cost. And of course we come to this occasion where we've got an individual who has some things that are going to stand between him uh, and the Savior, which had to be, what has to be money. His wealth, his position. Luke is quite interesting in t- looking at, at Luke uh, because Luke does some different things out of the, from the other three. In Matthew and Mark, when the, lo- the Lord begins the public ministry, the, the, the words that is proclaimed after the Lord comes back from being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew. Mark will say, repent and believe, uh, believe the gospel. But Luke being in a, 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 a physician, I think because of his practice, his 
profession. I think he was a little bit more sensitive as he made selection from what was available to him. He was not a witness, but obviously there was, there was testimony and there were other perhaps written documents that he used. He used Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, as he quotes the Lord Jesus Christ in Nazareth as he goes into the synagogue. And he proclaims Isaiah 61 and 1, and, and, and uh, lets it be known as the Lord, Lord spoke. He says, he's here for people who are poor. I, I'm here for those who are brokenhearted. Life has a way of producing brokenness. It can bruise us. There are those that are captives, uh, setting those the prisoners free, those that have been incarcerated, uh, maybe because of war, not because they've done something wrong, but because maybe war, or maybe they're put in for, for their faith or whatever, to free those, and those that are, 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 have been oppressed. And so I, I, think, I think there's a, a, a sense that, that Luke has an appreciation for, for the heart's of people as a physician. Now he's got a theological goal because the Lord is going to say this reading today has been fulfilled. When he wrote the, theolo- when the opening verses in chapter 1 to Theophanes he says let me tell you what has been fulfilled. So I think fulfillment is important to him but I think also there is the, the sense of being a, um, a physician having uh, an idea of those that are wealthy versus those that are poor. And what's it like in a society like that? The rich has no concern, perhaps, and certainly in, the, in this time, there's the arrogancy, dispassionateness uh, towards those that are poor, and obviously that those that are hurting. So Luke does something in this latter period of the Lord's life, public ministry, that is different than the other books. So what Luke will do, I would call them comparative pairs. To show the distinction between what takes place when it comes when, and, and, and in confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, between the rich person and those that are poor. Now the four of them are, are parables. But if we will look at these unique comparatives, we've got the Good Samaritan. The despised Samaritan. The Samaritans were despised people against the ruling class, at least in the religious level. The the Pharisee and the Levite. We get the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in chapter 16. Compare here the rich man, he's got it all. Lazarus, he's really ill. The dog's licking on his soul, on the uh, uh, sores, and he's in heaven. We've got the self-confident judge here. At, uh, well, I could drop down to, uh, to eight. I need to pick him up. We'll just do it as I see it on the screen. The self-confident judge who, didn't, who had cared less, had no fear for God, and the widow, very low in the social rung. Yet she was fervent, determined, persevered, that she wanted justice and wanted the judge to respond to her needs. There's a Pharisee and there's another Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisees comes up thinking he's almighty and good and is good and he's looking over at the tax collector because the tax collector, another despised individual. Oh Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. But the tax collector is broken. He's broken as he prays before the Lord. And then we come up to, uh, 
to the rich man. The rich man, a rich young ruler in our passage, and the compliment is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was also a leader, and he was also rich. But his response was entirely different than, uh, obviously, than, the, uh, than this rich young ruler. So if we would go ahead and continue, and at least having appreciation of what takes place, we would say, um, we got approaching of the final week, and the Lord is heading to Jerusalem. I couldn't get a greater crowd, but there's a very large crowd. If we would read other passages in Luke, they said there was a large crowd, a huge crowd of followers. I can imagine, obviously, there would be the, the 12 up there really next, very close to, the, close to our Savior. Then there would be the 70, the 70 that he had already sent out uh, earlier. And then there would just be others, and they're just, the, the throng is just, are just there, and there's just pressing. And then there's the rich young ruler somewhere along the line, maybe, maybe off, came off from the side, maybe in the back, and I see him just working the crowd, trying to get through the crowd so he can get up uh, to, the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gets up there, and um, Mark says that he actually falls onto his knees. But the certain, verse number 18, but a certain rich, a certain ruler asks, saying, good, good teacher, what shall I be, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now here's an individual that is rich. Matter of fact, the passage in here says he was very rich, extremely rich. And he was very successful because he's a, he's a ruler. He's, he's in, a, in a, a ruling class of people within a nation. But yet he has this sense that something is missing in his life. Something is not there. He's not as sure, and he's probably a kind of a moral guy too. You know, he, 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 we're going to see, he, he kept the commandments as he, as he viewed how they ought to be kept. So here we've got this, this very rich and successful young guy, but deep down inside he's uncertain about eternal life. He's got an empty soul, which brings us to our first principle. Wealth and success do not produce lasting satisfaction in our souls. It doesn't do it. Even though we're, we're, we're still, I think many still pursue the American dream. The success, climbing the ladder, or money is something to pursue fervently. But it doesn't produce substance in the soul. There's nothing lasting. Read the writer uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes. It's just vanity and vexation of the soul. There's nothing there. What says, therefore, will I go anywhere Jesus goes? That's the question, the reflective question. Will I go where Jesus goes? Now, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem now. And what's the anticipation? Well, first off, he's going to meet someone who's blind. And, and Luke says there's two blind, a couple of blind guys or blind men, but we know that later, if we would turn back to, to Mark or Matthew, it's, it's, it's Barnabas, blind Barnabas. That's who that is. 
So he's going to encounter somebody who is blind, somebody who has need, someone that is broken. But he's also going to recognize something about the calling that God has placed upon his life. Then there's a point of agony and, and, and concern uh, that I'm sure we know that he had. Would I go where Jesus has gone or goes? To be a disciple is to feel or not to feel we are too, too good to go to the poor, to the broken. The poor are constant people. They are people group in, uh, in the, the structure here of, in Israel. Am I too good to go to poor people? Am I too good to go to those that are in a lower social status? Am I too good for that? There's a man that we had in our visit with us in our seminary. Uh, he's a good friend of ours. He's ministering in Camden, New Jersey. You'd have to be on the East Coast and know Camden, New Jersey. That is one of the armpits of the U.S. of A. But this couple grew up and at least ministered in a church similar to ours that we have. And there was a call for them to go to Camden. I said, nobody's going nobody's to go to Camden. Matter of fact, one of the challenges that it is, is the fact that he, he'd like to have someone that would come, that he can pass that ministry over to him. In my heart, here's my, here's my thing. Nobody's going to go to Camden. Nobody's going to go to poor people. They're not going to go. We only want to go pretty much where we basically are comfortable with. We're not going to go where it's dirty. We're not going to go where, where there's always uh, great difficulties that are... That are, are uh, related to the money. I just want to, if I could take out just a moment, I'm not going to going to take too much of the message time, just to read just a, uh, just a couple of a pair of sentences of his, one of his recent letters that he sent, sent out to me. Obviously, he's very, very thankful, thankful for the consistent prayers. But, but here's a, let me just give you a couple of these thoughts here. Please continue to pray for Victoria, who has been attending our church now for over a year. We have been ministering to her on and off since she's been coming. She struggles heavily with drug addiction. She works two-part jobs, two-part-time jobs, but constantly relapses into using drugs. Last night, one of our members who lives in Camden called and told me that yesterday he led a childhood friend, George, who is 70 years of age, to the Lord. He said that George is a drug addict who has been doing drugs since he was a teenager. And then he goes on and speaks about being steadfast in the ministry. But there are many, many more paragraphs that are just like that. That's that ministry that, he, that God has called him to be. And I'm expecting some call that will be made uh, for someone to go uh, to Camden to replace him. He'd like to spend maybe have six years with somebody uh, in terms of being able to pass that ministry over. The good Samaritan, or at least the, our, our good fellow, our, our rich young man, he comes to the Lord, and he comes to him and he says, good teacher. He uses the word good, which typically is not necessarily referred to as a rabbi, but perhaps he's got this moral thought in his own mind. 
But the Lord quickly turns that around. Because the idea of the word good denotes an upright or an honorable individual to be impeccable without, within one's essential nature. Good through and through. The Lord will turn his attention to who really is God. Not denying himself as being God, but getting him to think about the words that he is using and the need that he basically has. So the Lord will turn and says, Who, uh, why, why you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So he aims his, his, captures his attention of really to think about there's only one individual who is really good. And if you want to consider goodness, goodness is in God. But a defining moment is coming up here for him very soon. He says, well, look, the Lord turns to him and says, well, no, knowing what his need is, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not uh, murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And, of course, he turns and says, yeah, I, I'm a moralist. I'm, I've, I've done all of these things for my youth. But you'll notice one thing, he, doesn't add, he actually doesn't add anything on the first four commandments, even though perhaps we can make the association with the idea of good, only God is good. But he also doesn't include the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. He doesn't add that commandment on there. So the, so the individual is thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm good, is, is, is this good enough? Well, he's good on a superficial level, but he's not good in the sense of a deep, loving, loving uh, connection with his neighbor. And that is because he's got money. And so the Lord is going to tell him, if you're going to follow me, there's one thing that you lack in verse number 22. You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Give it all away. But it's not just giving. This is an investment. This is an investment. Now you have to kind of imagine, here's this guy, he's a rich guy. I kind of imagine, they, they, every now and then they, they list these rich individuals that we have in our world today. $113 billion is is um, the tes Tesla guy. I can't, I can't fathom that. I want to call him up and just send me your change. <laughs> That's got to be worth a million or so. <laughs> you know, next time, it, you round it off, you know, round off by the millions, you know. You got send, send me the rounding number. Send it over to me. But this was something... Yeah, keep it. I've got this wealth. I've got this position. I would be like these poor people. And he had that in it. And, and, and what takes place in verse number 13, when he heard this, he was very, and it's, it's, it's amplified, very sorrowful. For he was very rich. The word sorrowful there is only used five times in the New Testament. Two times in this passage, we just saw, we just saw uh, the one, and then the Lord's going to, rep, uh, and in verse 24, very sorrowful. Two times the Lord 
in the garden of Gethsemane. It was a sorrow as though I would die if I had to give up my position, if I had to give up my money. I would die. I, this is nothing I can, I can't do this. I would, I, I, it's just something that is unimaginable in my life that I would be willing to become a nobody in the eyes of our society. Money is a real big problem. Money does have a positive in, 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 in life, in part. Writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know what? Money is a defense. It provides security. There's no question about it. Money does that. It does provide security. He says also in, in 10, 19, money is an answer to everything. Just throw money at it. Money will solve it. So money does have some, some benefits. I mean, we need money in order to live. But there's a problem with money. Because people, perhaps some of us, we love it. And the love of money ultimately ends up being the root of all evil. Luke will also bring out in Luke chapter 12 the individual that came up out of the crowd. Hey, Lord, Lord, tell my brother to share that inheritance. You want to see, you want to see a problem in our house? Let five dollars come in. One of the tragic things that have taken place in, in, in our family is for son, one of our family members, at least my wife's family member, die and leave a felt, very healthy inheritance. Even though it was somewhat designed in terms of how it would be distributed, destroy the family. Just destroy it. Money is destructive. But yet we pursue it because we're pursuing the, the wealth of our society. As a church planning, one of the things that very certainly very early on I had three issues that related to, to money. And I had it basically, I knew ultimately I would have to deal with because of money. The first issue is what I call tipping God in giving. You can look over to congregation and says, now we're ready to worship the Lord with our giving. And individuals would go into their pockets and uh, pull out a couple, two, three dollars. I call tipping for, tipping God is not planned giving. I'm just going to tip him. Whatever I got in my pocket, God can have the day. Oh, oh, 70, 85 cents. Put that in the offering plate. The second problem that we had that we had to deal with when it deals with money is what I call paying upon admission. You know, I had a, we, we've had some, some grand times going to the Phoenix Symphony. And um, on one occasion, we were able to get a, a ticket that was given to us. On another occasion, I, we, we paid for the tickets. And enjoyed the concert. We really did enjoy the concert. Thirty, forty dollars a ticket. But you know what? The next week, I didn't send them another thirty, forty dollars. I didn't. And the following week, I didn't send them any thirty, forty dollars. And for months, I haven't sent them anything. I'm only going to send them money when I'm admitted to the concert. There are believers that are only give upon admission. I'm here in church today. I plan to give. But if I'm away, well, 
I'm not admitted. I'm not here. I don't give. I don't give. Giving should be obviously from our heart, but in a sense of obligation to our Lord. Like Pastor Messler mentioned the verse that I also had. Paul will say, what is it that you have that you have not received? Name it. You can't. Because we've received everything. Everything has come from God. And so therefore he is worth it. He's worthy of our all. The third area in the church planning, and I got started, was the cold question of the cheerful giver. Well, I'm not happy to give. If we only did things based upon how we feel, we will be, we will do nothing for the Lord. I'm only doing it the way I feel. You know, we have to tell our feelings, feelings get behind me. We don't do things on feelings. We do things on our love. We do things on our sense of, of obligation. That's what we do. Which brings us to our next principle. Principle number two, salvation or discipleship has defining moments. We must decide whether or not to follow Jesus. We've got to make that decision. And I got this, I've got, I use the idea of the salvation and discipleship in this, in this particular context. He comes for discipleship, but ultimately there is, uh, he comes for salvation, but ultimately there is discipleship. So I, I really kind of look at, at the, the so salvation has two sides. I unqualified, and I always use the idea of unqualified. That's, that's always my, my word. Because the quali- qualified trust says, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ for this part of my life, but not the other part. I'm qualifying my trust. So trust in salvation is an unqualified trust. Following the Lord Jesus Christ is also an unqualified surrender. So it's two sides of one coin. As soon as we get saved, we really are beginning to grow. We're following the Lord. We have baptism, and I'm always, I chuckle in a sense. I'm elated in a sense. But there are two questions that are asked, are they not? Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you expect to follow him all the days of your life? Now, both of those are always answered in the affirmative, yes. But I say that there's defining moments because in this whole process and growth, God brings sometime an occasion, defining moments when uh, we need to respond. I've had several refi- def- what I would call defining moments in my life. The very early in my, I would say perhaps maybe three or four months after I got saved. Now, I, I can remember my wife would probably tell you, when I got saved, I said, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be a certain kind of Christian. I'm not going to be a, you know, I'm not going to be a square Christian. I use that word. I'm, I'm going to still be, I'm still going to be a pretty hip Christian. I'm going to still be doing certain things. Not necessarily terrible, terrible, but things that I ought not perhaps be doing, but I thought it would still be okay because my life was a life of, of um, having a good time and out and uh, running about. The church had a radio station. This is up in Minneapolis. They had a radio station, Fourth Baptist Church, if anybody knows Fourth Baptist Church. And they had a, they have a radio station. They still have the radio station. And so there was a promotional period that they wanted to raise funds for the radio station, and they were given stickers to put on their car. Now, I'm, I'm not a sticker guy. I really am not. 
You know, I, you know you're driving and there go, boom, there go by somebody from Compass Church, speeding, even out. So I don't want to be that. I don't want to have Tri-City Baptist Church and I'm doing this, you know, on the highway. I don't want that. I don't want that, okay? So I keep everything off the bumper. So, all right? But, but in this particular case, I said, I am not putting that, putting that sticker on my car. I'll give, but I'm not going to put that sticker on because I, I don't want people driving by. What's that, what's that sticker doing over where? What's that car doing where it is? But when it, it was a defining moment for me because I had to ask, and I'll ultimately ask this, this question of you later on because it'll still be your question. What kind of Christian do you want to be? And that was a question I asked myself. What kind of Christian do I want to be? And thinking through reflectively, thinking through and hearing God's word being preached, the Spirit of God working in my own heart, I said, I want to be all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want, any, I don't want to hold on to anything. I don't want to hold on to anything. And that's where the other challenge that Luke gave, that if you're going to put your hand on the plow, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God if you look back. And so I said to my heart, hands on the plow, I want to be all out for Christ, and I put the sticker on. I put the sticker on. That was my first defining moment in my life. It caused me to think, what type of Christian am I going to be? And am I willing to do this thing to demonstrate in my own heart? Didn't demonstrate everybody was putting a sticker on. But the sticker meant a whole lot to me. It meant that I am serious business. That old life is really passive. That is truncated. That is no longer part of my life. No problems where my car is parked. So when you drive by and see my car with that sticker on, it's in the right place. Amen. So the guy is broken here. I mean, he is broken. He went, went away because he was money and position meant a whole lot to him. I, I don't want to be poor. And that's the mindset that we have. If I give this all up, you know, God's arm is short. No, it's not. And that's why the challenge is that he said, assuredly, no one has left all these things. Assuredly. And I guarantee you by testimony, this is true. Now, whether he's there or not, he probably went back in the crowd. The Lord Jesus Christ turned to the disciples to follow him. And he says, uh, verse 24, You know, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here's some powerful illustration. Now, two ideas on the illustration. Oh, okay, I gave you that, all right? Currently, as far as you know in your heart, there's nothing between me and the Savior. So that's, your, that's the reflective question. The answer can only be filled in to you. And, and I call it a defining moment because right now, there can be some yeses on there. And I would hope there's all yes. There's nothing between me and my Savior. But just keep in mind, the Christian life has defining moments. And what are you going to do with those defining moments? So my, I, had my first, I must have five, at least five that I can think of. That was my first one. 
But each one of them caused me to think, what type of Christian am I going to be? What type of Christian am I going to be? So you have to answer. So you, but you've got to be able to answer that I am by God's grace. When I get further defi- defining moments, it's always going to be the affirmative. Always going to be the affirmative. So, two possibilities. The very possible, more than literal sense is, okay, the largest animal that they had there in the land, a camel, there's a needle they would use for mending their nets, their fishing nets. That camel cannot get through there. It's impossible. So using this, this very vivid uh, illustration to demonstrate when it comes to somebody who really is holding on to whatever that is. We're talking about money, but it doesn't have to be money. It could be something else that we're holding on. We're holding on to, to the good life. We're holding on to, to being here. I would never, never think about leaving the country until about 2003 or four. God gave me a defining moment. Would you be willing to go and spend three weeks in a country that, as I tell my wife, I I'm not going to ever take you there with me in terms of it being that bad. I would go. I would go. And I still go. Another possibility, and it's, there's really... In Syria, there's no documentation that... In Israel, they had this, what's called, eye of a needle gate. But the Talmud, which is a commentary that was written later, do, they do say Israel had an eye of a needle gate. So the eye of a needle gate would be at the, the walls. So at a certain time, the walls to the city closed. So the only way that a person can get in is to go through the eye of a needle, a very narrow gate to get through. So that's another alternative. It's probably less not necessarily this the case, but it's an interesting illustration. So for a camel to go through there, he would have the camel, you'd have to put the camel down on its knees, and whatever burden that's on the camel, that's got to be removed. So it's a nice illustration to say, you know what? We're going to come to the Lord. We're going to follow the Lord. It's on our knees. And we've got to offload all that which burdens us or that we're holding on to. And if we're holding on to anything, we're not going to be able to get through. He said this is just an impossibility for such a thing to basically to occur. And so Peter, as he would always do, stand up and look, you know, we left everything. I think he's probably a little proud or maybe a little braggadocious or whatever. But the Lord is therefore will, will ultimately turn and give us the assurance here in verse number 29 and in verse number, number 30, which gives us therefore our last basic principle. Our God will not overlook any sacrifice his spiritual children make for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He will not. He will not. Now it's very difficult for us to appreciate this. Because we are, we're so tan. Now he says, he says in terms of this promise, he says that it will be a return in present time. That's now. We're, we're tangible people. Uh, we may not all be from Missouri, but we hold to the philosophy. Show me. 
okay? We, we hold it a philosophy. And so we want to see that the tangibleness. We don't have any problems with the eternal life. Okay? We, that, that's our substance of our hope is what we can't put our hands around anyway. You got that, Lord. But I'm going to hold on to this other tangible part. But he's saying, he is saying, I'm going to take care of you in this life. In this life. We've heard God is not a debtor in this life. And in the, certainly, uh, therefore, in, in, the, in, the, in the day to come. In, uh, in terms of eternal life. That's our God. He's not going to, over, he's not going to overlook our giving, our, our investment. Now, we're investing now, we're investing for retirement, or we're living off our investment for retirement. We're doing things for our kids and trying to put those things away. But there needs to be a hefty, hefty investment in the things of heaven. And that's part of whatever is part of your life. That's, I've decided to follow Jesus. Remember that old song? I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I'm going. I am all in. There is no loss in the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't any loss. Regardless of age, regardless of stature, there is no loss. And I tell people, and I try to say, I'm all in. Nothing's going to keep, nothing's going to get in the way. My wife and I says, hey, you know what? We pack up, we'll pack it up and go. We packed it up twice, three times. We've lived in houses that we just loved. Pack it up, we're gone. We lost money on the, on the, on the mortgage crisis. Got called, we're gone. Lose money. It's all in heaven. So, do I really trust the earthly promise made by Jesus Christ? Do I? Do I? The message really is designed, and my prayer is, is to have those reflective thoughts at the defining moments that God has brought into your life. What kind of Christian do I want to be? Are you going to be part-time? Uh, you want to be just say, you know, hey, I'm pretty good. I go to church, I, you know, I pay my tithes, I, so on and so forth. But like the, the rich young ruler, he was, he was good. He, he said, hey, I, I, I do these things, I'm okay. But when it really came down to the real substance of what he believed, he didn't have it. He really didn't have it. And I think sometimes in living with some of us, and I know I have to challenge myself, even though I say my hand is on the plow, I refuse to look back. I refuse to look back. The challenge, what type of Christian will you want to be? Jesus is letting us know assuredly nothing's lost if we go for him. Nothing is lost.